bridges are finding their way into the premises of war movies all the time. We haven't even done half of the bridge movies on our list. They're important in war because they become focal points. Strategically critical bridges make a nice, easy microcosm of the larger conflict and become crucibles for the soldiers asked to take or defend them. Private Ryan was defending a bridge in our first episode. Colonel Nicholson went nuts and built a great bridge for the Japanese. Wars are just lousy with bridge stories. Today's film is from 1969, and it's right in the sweet spot as far as friendly fire movies are concerned. It's George Seagal, Ben Gazzara, and a bunch of salty American troops pushing into the fatherland and trying to cross the Rhine while Robert Vaughn and the rest of the Germans tried to stop them. The Third Reich is on its heels and in that phase of the war where they really don't have the resources they need to keep up the fight properly. But also, if anyone makes any comments about that, it's considered to be somewhere between highly indecorous and treasonous. And yet they're dug in and dedicated and make life a real challenge for the Americans. So in a way, the film forms a metaphorical bridge. It's the meet in the middle point as the Americans on their upward push into certain victory cross the Germans on their downstroke to inevitable defeat. We spend a lot of time on both sides of the river and it's fascinating to compare just the attitudes of the Americans, exhausted from the war but still full of pluck, with those of the German officers who are still living in relative comfort in their own country but are exasperated at the increasing insanity coming from the top. This is much lighter fare than the average late-in-the-war Germany film. We're not talking about the Holocaust or anything like it. It's just a mission, and it's a presentation of the challenges faced by both sides. The way the Germans lost, and the mirrored conflict within both armies. Director John Guillermin achieves the near-impossible, cutting together a coherent and compelling story after one of the most legendarily nightmarish shoots in film production history. Will you fight as hard as you talk? Today on Friendly Fire, the bridge at Remagen. Welcome to Friendly Fire. This ain't a war movie podcast. It's a death trap. I'm Ben Harrison. It's a suicide rap. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. What a movie, huh? I had no idea what I was getting. I, I thought this was going to be boring and corny. Yeah. I think I really like the movies of the late 60s and early 70s, just as a thing. Like, the tone of this kind of war movie is something that I can really get get with. I feel like it's aimed directly at me. Yeah. I mean, if you think about 1969, the way we think of that year, across all other, like, ways of looking at a year, right? Mm -hmm. Politics, music, anything else... <laughs> going on you've got a pretty good sense of what 1969 was all about but it's surprising that this movie is just about like some pretty heroic army guys going and doing a mission pretty well right this is right in the middle of vietnam like the, this is the the absolute peak vietnam era and this movie is just like digga, 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 digga. they crack wise about the about the brass a few times like 
it's not about like the horrors of war. It's not making the case against anything. It's just telling a story about something that like really like a pretty fictionalized story, but something that actually happened in World War Two. Well, the thing is, right, if you fought in World War Two, when this movie came out, you were about 40 years old. So this is just as it is targeted at you, Adam, who is 41. Permanently 40. I've per- been 40 for years. You're 40 years old. Like, imagine if you were your age yeah. and yet you had actually been in this war. Like, this is this was just raw meat for the greatest generation mm. who still were absolutely going to the movies, right? This is this wasn't this wasn't MASH. I mean, MASH came out more or less contemporaneously and was a movie meant for a completely different audience. Right, I want to amend my my first statement to say that accepting for MASH. <laughs> <laughs> this is the type of war movie that I like. But if you think about the movie MASH coming out with this with the bridge at Remagen also in theaters more, you know, s- somewhat at the same time, you see that MASH is also commenting on this kind of movie, right? That's what, yeah. that's what contextualized that movie for people then, right. was this was the other choice. Now, I think I would prefer the bridge at Remagen, frankly. Yeah, I mean, Kelly's Heroes was 70, MASH was 70. Yeah. As far as, like, the span of a couple of years, it feels like a lot of the war films that we've watched have been in that late 60s, early 70s time time frame. It feels like a much more modern movie in a lot of ways, though. Like, there's so many, like, really dynamic, like, helicopter shots and dolly shots. Like, there's, like, that opening battle where the tanks are, like, busting ass down this road, but also, like, swiveling their turrets around and firing at positions on the opposite bank of the river. Like, it feels, like, action-packed in a way that I don't think as many films from this era figured out a way to do. There were some crane shots Toward the uh, toward the beginning of the movie, that blew my mind. Yeah, like where the heck did they even get a crane that high? And again, they start at the ground. Yeah, and the crane just like goes up, 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 and you're going, "What am I watching?" This Is it was in a, a hot air balloon? Extremely high production value film. Yeah, really great work. All that vehicle to vehicle stuff too. Like you forget the vehicle to vehicle stuff because there's so much aerial and crane work happening, but they're doing car to car or jeep to jeep in this film. Almost throughout. Yeah. And, and these are sequences, too. It's not just a camera car shooting at, a, at an actor car for a while as they have a conversation. Like, there's, there's a travel and an endpoint there that they're having to reproduce over and over again. It's great. The logistics of some of these sequences are as complicated as anything in, like, Apocalypse Now. When the opening credits rolled, you know, I saw the Roman numerals down at the bottom. And I, I only caught a glance at them, and I said, did that say 1969? Because from the very start, it was it felt like a, a more modern movie. Yeah. Just the way it looked, you know? And so through the whole movie, I was like, 19, is this, did I get that right? You know, like 1969, was it 1979? Did I just not see it correctly? Yeah. And then at the end, I went and looked it up, and, and I, still, I still couldn't believe it. Like that wide shot in that opening on the left side of this frame, like 12 tanks gunning it down the road, firing. You've got in the center of the frame, the bridge, and on the right side, the the train just making it off the bridge, and then the entire bridge explodes. 
Like that's something you see in movies now all the time because you can paint in the tanks digitally, you paint in the bridge digitally, you do some digital explosions. Everything is faked. This is like they really shot this. <laughs> it's nuts. I thought they spent all their money by the time they got to Ramagan, <laughs> but then there's that shot. Uh, there's that shot of the tanks rolling through town and an entire wall of buildings coming down behind yeah. them. Yeah, multiple. They 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 wrecked a whole town making this. <laughs> I mean, so impressive. And that's another thing in 1969 you had access to. Like a European town that nobody cared about preserving that you could just you could just explode. You had <laughs> all these these tanks more or less of the era that were still in running condition yeah. that you could borrow. You could just borrow from the from the government of Austria for the weekend. The only dud was that B25 that flew over on that bombing mission with the bomb bay doors open, but then it doesn't release a bomb, but you hear, <laughs> and it was like, what are you doing? You're ruining this great movie with this one dud. They did an awkward comp there too, with all the, that B 25 footage. Yeah. Like the, the angles don't match up in yeah. the foreground and the background. Everything else was great. I just wish that they had either, they could have just not done that. They could have, they could have figured something else. The out. production just bought a town in Czechoslovakia and then just blew it up. Well, so so my understanding was that this town in in Czechoslovakia was it's it's even now the town of most is like one of the most polluted mining towns in Central Europe. And during this period, the late 60s, they discovered that there was a bunch of lignite under the town uh, that they wanted to mine. And they wanted to mine it more than they wanted to keep the town. So they moved everybody to, they were like, we're building a new town just right over here. And then they had this town they needed to destroy. And it was just. So they were hired to do the demo. It was like, oh, we'll make a movie there too. <laughs> wow. The, the history of Czechoslovakia and the making of this movie have some, there's some real crazy moments. The Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia happened during the making of this film. <laughs> And and uh, they had to like run, like yeah. actors with the trench coats on, like getting on trains. Uh, they left a bunch of cameras and left all the tanks. They left like five days worth of exposed film too. Like they they lost five days of the of the production because wow. they had to get out of town and they didn't have time to pack up. Yeah, well, the guys Soviets are showing up in. for their call time and they're like, "Where is everyone?" <laughs> <laughs> Pretty crazy, yeah. pretty crazy moment in in time to be over there making a film. I guess it was a cost saving uh, measure at the time to make to make movies in Eastern Europe, which kind of goes against the feeling that we have about the Iron Curtain and how closed it was. Yeah, um, right. That you could go take a Hollywood movie over to Yugoslavia or Czechoslovakia and and like blow up some towns. They did a vote on whether to stay or leave during the Soviet invasion, and only three voted to stay. The director and two stuntmen. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Pretty great. What do the stuntmen care? It's dangerous yeah, for them either like, way. Wow. <laughs> Take my chances the with these Soviets, I figure. <laughs> <laughs> So then they had to like finish shooting in Germany and Italy because they couldn't go back. Yeah, I heard I heard that eventually they got they went back and got some of that maybe they maybe they went back and got the, the got the footage and had those tanks belonged to the Austrian government like Right. Somebody had to get those tanks back. Anyway, pretty 
pretty cool to try and locate it in its moment. And and the, I think the one the one thing was how young Robert Vaughn looked. Yeah, was what kept me remembering. Like, okay, this has to be in the '60s, right? Because Robert Vaughn continued to work, and you know, sorted so did. George Seagal and and Ben Gazzara, they all had long careers. George Seagal is still on TV. Yeah, right. Just you keep up tight behind me. Ben, you and I have had to buy production insurance before. Yes. But uh, one of the conflicts in the production of this film is that they bought invasion insurance (laughs) for its production, and the insurance company argued that what happened wasn't an invasion. Right. Right. The the Czech government or the Czechoslovakian (laughs) government uh, invited the Russians to come. That was the Russian or that was the Soviet take on it. Insurance companies. What the hell? That always (laughs) seems to happen when Russians invade in particular, too, right? Like, no, 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 this wasn't an invasion. We just, uh, you know, Crimea was ours in the first place. Yeah. John, you and I both have invasion insurance. I do. In our homes in Seattle. I think it just makes sense. It does, considering where we live. Yeah. But uh, but I often worry that if an invasion happens, that the insurance companies will try and make it seem like it was... It's never a guarantee. Yeah, so... Yeah, from from the moment this movie established its that that the very opening scene when the tanks are are hauling ass down the road and they actually sped up the footage a little and I don't think tanks really like hauled ass like that. That's sort of not you don't really drive them like that. Yeah, I w- I felt a little bit like oh where am I? But but immediately it established such a such a cool vibe. The relationships between the actors all sort of believable and hard bitten, and and then I was in that position of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, when does this movie start to suck? Because it's it's because <laughs> it started off great, and can it sustain this level of intensity and interest, character development, and just like straight up uh, war war fighting? And it really keeps that level up yeah for two hours i mean it's a long movie it, would this have been Patton's army the ninth armored division was one that came in and actually got caught in the battle of the bulge late arrivals uh at normandy you know they didn't like the after normandy beaches were secured the ninth came in and you know and kind of just meandered around France during that period where it was sort of like, ah, they're not really on the front. And they ended up over by Luxembourg kind of just still pretty green. And then the battle of the bulge just whacked them. And so they had, they like fought an intense battle and actually made a name for themselves there. So by the time this would have their name being the bulge whackers, no, they're They were called (laughs) the phantom division because they, they held off a, a, German division, but they were only a company strength. And so the Germans thought they were fighting a, a division strength adversary, but they were just like, they were outnumbered one to five. Wow. So that hard bittenness to them, that like battle weary sort of savage vibe they have at the start, uh, isn't just because they're, uh, they're running on fumes, but because they're, they've just been through, um, like some really, really gnarly fighting. Fatigue is such a character in this film really in a great way. And I think it really speaks to the actor's ability to to show that. It seems 
adjacent to act drunk a little bit. Yeah. Like, how do you look tired in your eyes? Well, and they start, they're so tired that it start, they start to, it, it starts to become a kind of insanity. Yeah. I kind of maybe part ways with you guys on this because I felt like the movie spent a lot of time saying that they were tired and, you know, they were exhausted from this this drive that they were doing. But it didn't really, I didn't really get that feeling until George Siegel is like wandering around in, you know, danger close circumstances at the end of the movie. They didn't read as as tapped out to me at the beginning. Yeah, I felt that they did and I don't know I don't know why we would have a different feeling about it because I I got that like so worn out that you no longer have a you no longer have a smart answer um (laughs) you start to you start to be uh uh, sort of insubordinate just because you're like fine just discipline me then if I can like lay down for an hour I think part of that magic has to do with Major Barnes, who is so smarmy and ineffectual that you know from experience that the George Siegel character would have what it takes to stand up to him and crush him if he wanted to. But it's almost that he doesn't that tells you how tired he is. Well, in Major Barnes, he's introduced to us as like this can-do officer who's like, you know what? All the rest of these guys are too, they're, they're, they're too you know, puss to, to take their men into the action. But you know what? We're going to be the, we're the squad that never says die. And you're like, Oh, this is our guy. He's the fucking middle manager that, that calls all of his employees family. Right. You know, like, (laughs) but we immediately see him like, no one buys it like one minute later. Oh no. The thing is I bought it. Yeah. I bought that. He was, he was going to be our like tough officer. And then we see him with his actual troops and they're just so contemptuous of him. And all of a sudden he's revealed as. Yeah, he's he puts on the tough face for the general. Right. But with the guys under him, no one buys it. Right. Right. That was a cool switcheroo. He's kind of the trope of the of the dipshit lieutenant that we've seen in a lot of movies. But yeah. our main guy in this movie is a lieutenant. So it, it, like everything shifts up a, a step or two. Yeah, that's a good point. It's interesting in in World War II movies like this, and we see this in Saving Private Ryan. We see it in, um, it's certainly true in Band of Brothers, that a lieutenant is leading the charge into battle. And in later movies, it's often a sergeant. You know, it's it's yeah. the enlisted guys that are the the real fighters, and the lieutenant is kind of like uh, back on the radio. Right. And in this movie, like the captain is like is impatient and goes off and gets killed because he's like, I'll take point. (laughs) You're not moving fast enough. And you don't see that. You don't see that in movies about our contemporary, you know, the captain, you know, the captain's never like, I'll take point. No, (laughs) that sequence is amazing, Ben. Do you remember what happens when Captain Colt and Hartman have that interaction? The camera swings around and we follow the Jeep down the road all the the way way. until it rolls. All the way. Yeah. That's a long shot. (laughs) It's a long shot. No cut. I mean, for as much as we slobber on the shots in this film, the edits in this film, I think, are just as good. They're they're hiding a lot of them in whip pans. And in that sequence, especially when the Jeep explodes and rolls, we cut almost immediately to the explosion nearer to them. And it sells the effect beautifully. Yeah. Well, and that, that was a scene where um, later on, it's revealed how close Seagal's character 
and um, and that captain were uh, like as friends. Yeah. But in that moment, they're really bickery, bitching yeah. at each other, just like just super angry at each other. And yeah. that was that was another thing that sold the exhaustion to me. Right. The captain is like, you're you're not moving fast enough, and goes and dies, and we just watch. Siegel's character like you're gonna drive up there and die and I have to stand here and watch you like it just I don't know I really I was all in at that point it's that conflict of the satisfaction of being right with the way you're right being a tragedy a tragedy right there were there were a few moments in this movie where if it were made now like when they were in that in the courtyard of that house they'd shot all the Germans and they were picking up those chickens i kept waiting for them to bring a girl out from the back room and for there to be this threat of rape either implied or 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 depicted or at least a hot lipsification of that french girl that we get that scene is portrayed in a kind of 60s look at what would have been a 40s vibe which is it's almost the only thing in the movie that's played a little bit for laughs the soldiers are all like whoa (laughs) the fact that she was a woman created this like whoa what do we do almost what an interesting setting for that scene too that that it's not just 14 people male gazing a french woman it's that she's also in a jail cell yeah like she's she's not getting out yeah and we get you know we we get a little sort of 60s lasciviousness when she takes her blouse off but it's always kind of shot from behind you know jackie treehorn has a bit of a rep for treating objects like women so (laughs) but it was uh you know if we made this movie now we would this is another example of we would we would apply a contemporary look to that to all those interactions that would have had a lot more sort of violence and depicting this 40s era you could argue a film studies paper where this was whitewashed and that there actually would have been a lot more tendency to sort of animal violence but i think you could also argue that a bunch of soldiers in 1940 would have been uh restrained by a cultural expectation i think they could have they could have conceivably been in that situation and gone oh okay you know whoa god that is so interesting like the no one wants to imagine that grandpa raped a french girl in world war ii but for some reason there is so much more of an appetite for that idea uh from vietnam war veterans right you know not that there's any tolerance for it but there's a, a tolerance for the idea that it happened in in such a different way than from world war ii and that's where that baby killer in Vietnam thing had had a flip side, which was, you know, we we think of the hippies being people that were spitting on soldiers. But there was this other element, which was the greatest generation who felt like they had fought the war with a fought their own war with a sort of moral impregnability. And they watched this, they watched Vietnam and the kind of atrocities that, that started to be described. And they sort of turned their backs on the younger soldiers too, in a different way, you know, um, like turned their chairs around when they walked into the VFW and so forth. Boy, they really got off easy. So interesting to hear, like we reviewed the Big Red One pretty recently and 
we were talking about how Sam Fuller like argued with the army when they're like taking exception to the way he used some stock footage in in one of his films, not that one, but like that that he depicted war crimes in Korea was like a a big deal to them and and he was like, "Well, I saw it in World War II, so so I know that this kind of thing really happens." Like there is like a layer of what is polite to talk about almost that's that's like covering up a lot of bad behavior. It's an imperfect science, right? Bad bad things clearly happen in war, but I, like in general, this is a. Are you guys kind of both warsing right now? <laughs> is that what this argument is? I think it's the thing that I said, like in our in our first episode, which was that uh, that Saving Private Ryan was depicting forty soldiers with a kind of 90s access or lack of act or 90s take on the emotion that men were capable of expressing how do you remember what you said two years ago well that's <laughs> that's my unique gift do you remember everything ben and i say pretty much oh no i know that's why I, that's why i have so little i don't know why you do this with patience us. or respect for either of you <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speaking of impatience, uh, you get the sense that that's what Hartman feels for Angelo. He is uh, not very into Angelo's need to make a profit off of his wartime experience. Well, that relationship is so weird. You, there's so much animosity between them. But and also, yet it feels like there is a real strong love connection there too. An incredible bond, right? Yeah. They're like it's like big brother, little brother. Like they hate yeah. each other's guts and also love each other to death at the same time. Angel's death is the only one who moves the needle for Hartman throughout the film. Like that's that's the moment he starts to feel again. Yeah, but also that's the moment we start to see crazy eyes yeah. from him. Yep. You know, he he get he stands up and and makes that walk down the bridge with bullets flying and it's just like he doesn't yeah. He doesn't care whether he lives or dies anymore. No. He's lost everybody. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm-hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Yeah. The idea of, of like stealing stuff off of bodies. I mean, there's a very clear policy about that. You wouldn't steal stuff off of a dead Nazi body? I would. You're not supposed to. 
you're not supposed to loot bodies on a battlefield. It's not just a bad look. It's like against the rules. Fuck Nazis, dude. I'm taking a watch. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, you most guys came back from the war with souvenirs. Yeah. Five long years he wore this watch. In the aftermath of a body, to have all your soldiers just walking across the killing field, rifling like looking, people's pockets. Looking like Mr. T. Yeah. It's really... <laughs> It's frowned upon, but you know, but he's the sergeant. He's the, he's the ranking enlisted guy. Yeah. And so this is how he's decided he's going to do it. I mean, it seems like minor stuff. Angelo is not lifting like thousands of marks off of people, but I think it is the insubordination that, that yeah. irritates him more than anything. He's telling Angelo not to do this and he's he, doing it. He's doing it anyway, right in his face. Yeah. It's one of the more, you know, critical parts of this movie. Like, it's this movie is mainly just a, a pretty fun adventure, but the way that stuff is dealt with does feel, like, a little bit political and a little bit like the film is making a statement about it. There's that vibe that we normally see as a... And you, you've already touched on this, but the, the conflict between the enlisted who are doing the fighting and the officers who are, who are behind the lines and ineffectual. But here, that's blurred because it's really officers lower ranking officers that are leading that are leading the charge and so we have a dynamic that we're used to seeing but we're losing the we're losing some of the class element to it this whole looting the bodies thing is in the hands of a guy that also is swarthier Mm -hmm. and has a more uh, inner city accent i mean both these actors are from new york Guys, I'm going to drop a reference here that we haven't used in a long time, but is Angelo the Rickles of this film? <laughs> wow. he's I kind of feel like he is. He's a he's a good war fighter, but we've seen Rickles, we've seen Rickles fight war. Yeah. I was very surprised to feel the feelings of not quite empathy, but I think there's a Robert Vaughn effect going on here and <laughs> that I really did care about his circumstances. Because you look like him. Robert Vaughn is like looking in the looking in a funhouse mirror for you. I think he's afflecking a little bit. Like I was I was asking myself, why am I rooting for him? This is the <laughs> wrong side to root for. And yet the reason is because he is made to be the underdog throughout. He's under gunned and undermanned and given shit like throughout and he is just getting it piled up upon him and you obviously don't want to root for the nazi side but robert vaughn is so good well we get that thing that was such a popular thing in 20th century representations of of the nazis which is the wehrmacht are posited as honest and noble regular working soldiers who have a hard time seeing heiling but they do it because they have to and then the ss and the dyed in the wool like like fascistic super nazis who you know by contrast allow us to side with you're exactly right And, and this movie does that because it gives us the good guys of von brock and kruger uh, who end up getting punished in the end by the bad Nazis right. Right. in the form of the SS. So we get to, I mean, because if we were just fighting Nazis on the other side of the bridge, it would just, it would it'd be a cartoon battle, but we get the... And the movie wouldn't spend a lot of time trying to make us see the what a tough time they had also. Right, right. I have a, uh, a quibble that a pedant on the internet uh, registered with IMDb uh, about oh, the SS God. officers in the film. 
Not only do the junior SS officers in the film wear the incorrect pre-war black uniforms, but most, but most also display the honor chevron of the old guard on their right sleeve. This was not an insignia of rank, as is often assumed, but signified that the wearer had been a party member and or SS member prior to Hitler taking power in 1933. A young junior SS officer in 1945 could not have been a party member long enough to have merited this distinction. Now, just imagine that. Imagine what that pedant <laughs> does on his weekends. Imagine his search history. <laughs> do you think he's painting little Ronins yeah. of uh, of pre-war Nazis uh, in his attic? I think he is. You're better off not saying anything at all if you're him, right? <laughs> And I'm going to say him, obviously. Yeah, he, he wasn't old enough to vote in 33, and therefore... <laughs> right. I mean, this is the type of pedant that has a, a, like a, a, a plate from Berchtesgaden in his little collection of memorabilia. My favorite thing about Berchtesgaden is the uh, endless breadsticks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, they have Hospitaliano there. Right. Yeah. yeah. When you're there, you're family. <laughs> Do you think Shaq got rich playing in Orlando? I have always had a hard time with Robert Vaughn. Really? Um, and, and it might be because of the stuff he did in the 80s. But there's a. You didn't like season five of the A Team, did I, you? I, I didn't. I and, did. And I know lot. you did. Because that's the difference in our ages. Yeah. But I. I just, I've always found him stiff. And in this movie, he shows, I think, the most emotion I've ever seen or we ever would have seen from Robert Vaughn. He does get, he does get frazzled over time. And, um, and that was interesting to watch. That part where he shows up at the bridge and, he, and he's asking Schmidt for yeah. all the stuff that isn't there. Yeah. The, the growing incredulity. Yeah. What in about the moment? Hitler youth? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got 16 guys and some construction explosive. <laughs> that was a thing I didn't realize that military grade yeah. explosives and in like industrial grade explosives were Get that pink stuff out of there. Oh my god. Industrial grade is spoken of with such uh, disdain. <laughs> you can't even blow up the bridge with that garbage stuff. industrial grade explosives. You don't want gendered explosives. You want the blue stuff, not the pink. Don't get the stuff with little <laughs> rabbits on it. Get the stuff with little mean boars. Boy, but they really had a lot of it, right? When <laughs> they get yeah, under they that did. bridge and you so see much. just the fucking pencil erasers as far as the eye can see. Or little sausages. They were snossages. It looked oh. great yeah. under that bridge, that bright pink under the dark bridge. Good contrast. The the captain played by Hans hey John, Christian Blech, yeah. This bridge showed pink. <laughs> so lame. So save it for your Star Trek podcast. You're the one that in, introduced the "it showed pink" phrase to this program, John. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I that one really <laughs> that one really rippled throughout our greater listenership. <laughs> uh. Hans Christian Bleck, we've seen him in other films, and he has a face and a style. Uh, he's so he's so good, and so and just added the necessary gravity. There are a few few times in the film where you're like, "Oh, wait a minute, are we watching something that's a little too fun? Is this too fun?" Yeah, 
but he takes all the fun out of it. When Kruger shoot, shoots the deserters, that's his moment to shine. Oh, yeah. Everything for him and his character leads up to that moment. Yeah, he deepens the film yeah. at that point. Just the, in his one word, like, why? Yeah. And even the look on Kruger's face in that moment, he doesn't know why. Yeah. It was yeah. just reflex for him. Yeah. Kruger feels terrible. He's like, God, I'm being like a real Nazi about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it's true. Like, he, 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 that was old Kruger, and yeah. he is new Kruger, but that was his last kind of, his last failure. Yeah. Well, I mean, his last failure was being put up against a pole and shot, but. Yeah, I, I thought that, that was pretty failure. pretty powerful when they uh, when they pan up to the sign that says days since last deserter was shot in the back, <laughs> and they have to flip it back to zero. This movie made me think a lot about Paz of Glory uh, in that scene of execution here. Uh, the only time that this film goes POV is on the approach to the post, and that was super haunting to experience. You get all that detail. Just yeah. looking at the, at the post for a moment. That post with all the bullet holes, the stained bullet holes in it. And hearing wow. the, the planes overhead. And like it, you almost like think that the movie is going to give this guy an out. Like, is oh, are, the, is, are bombs going to start falling and it, the war's just over for them at that point? But yeah, no. I mean, think about being the last guy, the last German soldier executed by the SS for treason right before the American soldiers come in and yeah. and uh, mow everybody down. Well, and just think about like the the fact that the German army was resorting to this at this point in the war. Like they're like they're getting the Volksturm activated and and having like 14-year-old kids fire guns out of the second story of hotels and also right. taking a capable mid-rank officer and taking him out behind the behind the barn and shooting him i mean that's how you're going to enforce order you get a 14 year old looking at a major uh executed back behind a, a building like i think they're gonna they're gonna stand up a little <laughs> straighter right. right the executions will continue until morale improves right. <laughs> i thought that the movie made a, a real uh interesting comment about another aspect of the Volkstrom that I don't think we've talked about much, which is the idea that it's like old men and little kids doing a lot of the Volksturming, and that is a lot harder for soldiers on the opposing army to contemplate shooting at. And, and like that, like when they, when that little kid gets killed, it's like, it really hits him hard. The first sign of, uh, uh that he is, he's affected by what he's doing. Right. You can tell he's affected because he doesn't loot the kid. Well, and that's that's that that moment where he and Siegel kind of or Seagal kind of turn on each other, and their what had been a simmering dispute between them became a became a potential like life and death disagreement. Yeah, is the gun that Ben Gazzara has in this movie a German gun? Yeah, it looks like an MP40, which is the little submachine gun. Uh, that the Germans used kind of the, it's sort of the um, equivalent to the Tommy gun. Yeah. Uh, but like a cooler gun, kind of smaller. I mean, I I wonder, I wonder how much that happened uh, that guys said, Oh, this is a better gun than my stupid. Well, he's already looting corpses. So he'll, he'll be able to right. find plenty of ammunition for it. Just kind of yep. out and about. I wonder if that, if that was as commonplace as, 
Yeah, Kruger's totally hitting triangle and switching guns, Ben. <laughs> Is that some Uxbridge Shimoda reference? That's a video game reference. Oh, okay. Hitting triangle, I get yeah, it. Yeah, you got to hit the triangle button to switch guns. I get it. Herp-a-derp. You would think that the scene between Kruger and the kid would be like the centerpiece of what happens inside that inn. But good Lord, everything that happens between Hartman, Angelo, the innkeeper and the innkeeper's wife is tragic and yeah. awful. And it's it notes this thing that happens at the end of war, which is the moment when people decide to stop fighting for a lost cause and make decisions about how they feel about the casualties. That moment with the mom, Hartman and the innkeeper's wife have a conversation about her dead son and it is as dark as war films get in my in my feeling where she's like oh should i be proud of that sacrifice yeah oh well the reflective like the reflex of it's almost like the reflex of like uh, thank you for your service is just sort of thrown out unthinkingly yeah but in this case it's it's you must be so proud as a as a placeholder for that and it gets so ugly so fast. Well, and, and that ugly, ugliness continues in his conversation with the innkeeper. Yeah. Where the innkeeper says, have I, you know, because he says like, why don't you get out and do something fatty? Oh, no, it's a, it's, that's the conversation. To be he, clear, it's Kruger and the innkeeper's wife that has that conversation. Right. Kruger, Kruger says, why don't you get out? And he says, can you make more of a sacrifice than losing a son? Yeah. And he says, well, yeah, your son made a greater sacrifice. And it's like, ugh. Right. There's so much going on there because it's it's not only the family sacrifice, but it's also the insanity of a Kruger asking more of a family that's given so much already at the end of a lost war. But you see, you see the innkeeper being a kind of, um, you know, a morally compromised character who who recognizes the war is over. If I can just keep my in. Yeah, I've just got to coast at this point. You know, point. like if the, the, I've just got to make it through the next like 48 hours and then I'm, I'm a wealthy burger again. It's, it's dependent on what side of the river he's on. Right. It's that dumb luck. And if they, if they decide to set my in on fire, then I'm a refugee. Yeah. So everybody, you know, smiles, everyone, smiles. Let's hang some white yeah. sheets in the windows and keep our fingers crossed while we hang out in the cellar. Just got to run out the clock. And you saw that all across Germany, I'm sure. The kind of like the way that all of a sudden it's like, let's greet them as liberators because wow. And especially in the West, because I think in the East, the Russians came through and were just like everything that's not nailed down and every one that's not nailed down, take them and use them for whatever you can. The film was fun in a lot of parts. I was not expecting this scene or this film's ability to give us a scene like this in in the film. It was really great. It's such an interesting position for Kruger to take, too, because like in earlier scenes when he was meeting with uh, the general, I guess that's von Brock. You know, when the door closes, they talk openly about like what a bozo Hitler is and how Hitler is under the mistaken impression that Germany is still winning the war and that he's like giving all these insane orders about, you know, like, like Kruger finds himself in a microcosm of what von Brock warns him about, which is like, he tells me to move divisions that no longer exist. But if I say they don't exist, I'm committing treason. Right. And 
when Kruger gets there and finds out that they don't exist, like like he falls into like this exact like the thing that uh, that that he and his and his boss are joking about in in such an interesting way. Like you know, he goes and gets executed at the end, but he's he's done quite a bit of the most horrible stuff in the in the film. Did you feel like the film was drawing any co- sort of equivalence between orders of that nature and the kind of order that uh, that the general gives to Barnes to disseminate about like taking the bridge because it may end the war even though everyone might die? Like, yeah. Do you feel like that was happening here, or or because these are Americans and American GIs, and there's a heroism inherent in in that side versus the other that 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 wasn't a part of it. I kind of felt like that was more like we watched the the eye in the sky for last week's show and that was kind of that the trolley conundrum, the like the ethical problem of like like if we can get this bridge maybe it saves 50,000 lives uh, but and maybe we sacrifice 100 of our guys to do it. And like I kind of felt like that was what that general was there to represent. That general launches the Hellfire missile. Right. (laughs) No question. What's funny is that at no point during this whole theater were the Americans really concerned about there being bridges over the Rhine. They were more than happy for the Germans to blow them up because, two reasons, it kept, uh, there were a a bunch of troops, uh, German troops, that were this rump uh, group that could just be captured. There wasn't a way for them to retreat. With the rump, you want to go low and slow, so you really like wear the collagen down and really falls off the bone. Talking about the rump sturm. Do, you, do your <laughs> wives listen to this program? Because if they do, you should be ashamed of yourself. My, my wife is the only one that is, is the only one of our wives that listens to any of our shows, and she listens to this one in particular. Yeah, it's true that my wife Which does makes not my listen. wife the smart wife. <laughs> But there's that reason, and also you were the lumping US me Army, in with Adam. I wasn't saying you had a wife, John. I was saying of yeah, the two of you us, you and Adam. How can I not lump you together? No one would ever guess that you have a wife, John. I think you're safe. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. None of our female listeners are like, "Wow, wow, that's very surprising." Yeah, what? A, how weird? You mean he's available? <laughs> Sliding into uh, the DMs. <laughs> hey, I heard what you said about Nazis, and I'd uh, really like to get to know you on a personal level. But there was another aspect to the American Army at this point, which was um, that they had uh, they had engineers, and those engineers had constructed a whole new concept of like portable bridges, easy to set up, sort of floating bridges across these rivers. And the army was counting on them uh, because otherwise all these bridges across the Rhine would have been a major strategic uh, goal. Right. But but the army was like, yeah, let them blow up the bridges. Like we can ford these rivers without too much trouble. But the difference between the two days it would take to build that bridge right. in, in terms of getting across this Remagen Bridge, which incidentally only survived for a week 
after yeah. these events and then collapsed into the river. <laughs> that end title card is so like, it just takes the piss out of the whole movie in a lot of ways. Like, and none of this matters. Yeah, right. But, but it did. But, you know, they got, they got something like 80,000 American yeah. troops over the bridge in the time that it was sitting there que- creaking and swaying in the wind. Were there people on it when it fell? 30, something between 20 and 30 American engineers died when the bridge collapsed because they were on the bridge trying to save it, trying to shore it up and like, yeah, just like, okay, what if we put a thing over here and then it just, it fell and like, we lost a lot of, uh, a lot of like really good combat engineers when the bridge fell, but it didn't have any, I think what happened was they got, they chased everybody off the bridge and we're like, we're going to, we got it. We got this. And then they died. <laughs> Did anyone ever think of sticking a turret on top of a bulldozer? Well, why what, not have both? What they did was put bulldozer <laughs> blades on tanks. Yeah. They didn't put a tank turret on a bulldozer. Yeah, but where's That's that? That's like putting a hat on a hat. Where's that in this movie? Well, those were, they used them. You know those tanks that had the minefield sweepers? Uh-huh. They had giant rollers that were covered with like, a cat of nine tails balls on chains Uh and they would roll across a minefield with this roller spinning just blowing up mines the guys inside that tank are like you're giving us basically a steamroller tank but you can't give us a bathroom what the hell (laughs) no bathrooms even even uh, even much later no bathrooms yeah but that would be a cool job that would be like That'd be one. Of, that'd be like the tanks with the with the bulldozer blades that buried all those Iraqis. I want that to be the logo for Friendly Fire: the tank with the with the steamroller attachment with the cat of nine tails on it. With a hat on a hat. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't put the hat on the hat because it'd be a cool T-shirt. Yeah. But if you tried to make a joke out of it, it would be a sucky. Let's t-shirt. try to make it cool this time. Yeah, make it cool, not sucky. Uh, I don't know if we're capable of that. <laughs> yeah. There's a thing we never interrogate and this has taken me 30 years of reading about world war ii to kind of put together that's older than ben even is i know isn't that crazy but i think that the german soldier on the ground felt that the americans were sort of like them and there was a sort of incredulity like why do the americans want to fight us like we understand why the russians want to fight us but there's slobs. We can all agree on sausage. Yeah, we can all. But, you know, Americans are, if, if, you're, if you're looking at the Germans' kind of racial outlook at the world, right. they're like, the Americans are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants like us. Don't they also share our desire to rid the world of, of uh, Slavs and Darks? And so there Except was, what about all those Brooklyn Jews over there? Well, that's the problem, right? You'd have to go you'd have to filter through. But there's a but I think there was that confusion too, that the Germans kept thinking that the American soldiers would come over and be like, Hey because they're, you know, like Hey, I'm trying to ethnically glance over <laughs> here. <laughs> What's up? High fives all around. Because you know, the the Midwest of the United States still is largely ethnically German. There were so many grandsons. And Polish. And Polish, that's right. What was up with the uh, Polish and Russian volunteers that they talked about in this movie? Well, so they were pressed into service, right? They were captured on the Eastern Front and given the option of fighting for the Germans on the Western Front. Huh. And they uh, they actually formed whole brigades of Russian um, Russian soldiers fighting for the Germans against the West. But when those 
soldiers were captured, um, when Russian soldiers fighting for the Germans were captured by the Americans, the Americans repatriated them to Russia where they were immediately firing squatted. So it was a bad deal for them. And so when the Americans, they, and they knew it. So when, uh, when they encountered the prospect of being captured, I think they put on civilian hats and ran for the bushes. What a nightmare. Uh, So they didn't, so they already fought the Germans in the East, lost, were captured and then put on German uniforms and fought in the West. It was a bad. How many times can you lose and then get executed at the end of it? I know. Right. Wow. May I ask, where did you get that? How about, uh, how about the name Hans Christian Blech? (laughs) Really, really takes a left turn at the end there. That's the that's the Mad Magazine feature without yeah, uh, right. Bridget. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some speculation that he, you know, he fought on the Eastern Front in the war, and it's unclear whether those facial scars came from a car accident or whether or not he received those on the Eastern Front. And like a lot of men in his generation, I'd probably he, lean into the war story. Yeah, maybe a little bit, right? Yeah. Oh, I ran a stop sign one time, or. <laughs> I fought a saber battle with a Russian officer. He's a survivor. He lives until the end. Yeah. Yeah, in, interestingly, like, like he, do, he doesn't really get along with Critter, but I, I feel like the film shows us that they're both coming from a similar place, but because he doesn't, like, storm back into the, uh, the HQ to complain about the lack of support that he's getting, he, uh, he manages to get off scot-free. Well, you know, we think of in these scenes, those captured Germans sort of walking over, being disarmed, and then being invited to, I mean, they just keep walking, walk to Paris and get a hotel. But in fact, right there outside of Remagen, there was an internment camp after the war where like tens of thousands of Germans were just kept in a barbed wire enclosure, basically under the rain while they figured out what to do with them. The camp is on the other foot that time, huh? I'll say, I'll say. And I, and I think thousands of German soldiers just died of typhus and dysentery while they were trying to figure out, like, how do we process all these dudes and denazify the Nazi ones? And, and that was a big part of that after-war decision-making where the American government realized... Yeah, all the best camp administrators are inside the camps. Right. Now what do we do? <laughs> Maybe that's something we should bring back, though. Like, put, like we've got all these camps built, right? Put the Nazis mm-hmm. in them until we figure out how to denazify them. But eventually they just sort of let them all go, and they went back to Germany and picked up a shovel and tried to start rebuilding it. Most of them are making uh, your Volkswagens, or their sons are. Every Volkswagen bug you see was made by somebody that was in that camp at Remagen. <laughs> the if you Google Remagen, the photo that comes up is the still unrebuilt uh, head of the bridge there. Right. They wow. Ne- they never rebuilt it because at first they didn't need it, and then after we came into modern times, the residents of Remagen feel like it would block their view. <laughs> <laughs> No, seriously. Wow. There was a there was a movement to rebuild it and they were like, "No." You got Ramagan Nimbies? Yeah. <laughs> That's what this is about. God, they're everywhere. <laughs> It'll bring undesirable types from the other side of the Rhine. 
<laughs> well, and what's interesting, of course, is that the Rhine, the Rhine at this point is pretty deep into Germany. The Rhine isn't the border. Right. No. They've already crossed. It's not the Rio Grande. No, but it is thought of as the last, the last defense. Yeah. Once they're across the Rhine, they're in. The, there's nothing to stop them. Nothing to stop us. By them, you mean us. By them, I mean us. Whoa. Again and again, by them, I mean us. Every film on Friendly Fire gets its own custom rating system that I design. It's made up of an object scene in the film that we've just discussed. A lot of things in this movie. A lot of things. <laughs> really wanted it to be pink explosives, but it's not going to be that. It's going to be a thing that we haven't talked about during the discussion. It's that gold cigarette case. Might be a little obvious, but it's Kruger cigarette case. It's always a thing he goes for, whether or not times are good or bad. He's kind of reliant on this thing. It's one of its his few comforts. It's probably the only thing that does anything right for him in this film, too, until he loses it. It's, the, it's old dependable, the gold cigarette case. And for a film like this, there aren't too many things you can depend on. It feels like a lot of people and aspects are letting you down throughout whether or not you're on the axis or the allies side but maybe the biggest character in the film is that sense of fatigue it is compromising everyone everyone's moody everyone's hangry does not seem like a great place to be at the end of world war ii i mean it's super sceney right like the film is about taking and keeping the bridge or if you're on the other side attempting to destroy it maybe but it's made up of so many really good scenes that really hang together in a very satisfying way. I was blown away by how much I like this film. The performances were great. I've said it before. I love me a Robert Vaughn. Give me all that Robert Vaughn for sure. But uh, George Seagal's no slouch either as the, as the hard-bitten lieutenant. This is one of those films that really came out of nowhere for me, much like uh, Eye in the Sky came out of nowhere for Ben. Wasn't sure what I was expecting here, but it certainly wasn't this. I think this is one of my favorite war films that I've seen in a really long time. For that reason, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bump it up to like four and a half gold cigarette cases. Very satisfying. Lots to like. It's hard in a lot of places. It's thoughtful in a lot of places. If it's just a fun action romp, like Kelly's Heroes or whatever, I, it wouldn't be as satisfying as it is, but it really tries in some areas, and I respect it for that. So four and a half for me. This is a movie that feels like it's at a level of filmmaking that the rest of its, you know, the rest of the pack wasn't at yet. Like this, this era... I don't I feel like I know for like there are there are a couple of corny sped up tank shots but it gets that out of its system really quickly and then it's not just a bunch of like crash zooms and groovy 60s split screen there's no detached irony in it it's a it's a pretty sincere movie and from a technical standpoint just bonkers good like there yeah. are so many just masterfully done shots, like great dolly shot of a tank just kind of coming around a corner and taking taking a German RPG and then another tank coming out from behind it and taking out the entire building that the Germans are in. There are so many 
moments like that. You don't see them coming. Like the movie is is very understated and and just will casually throw in like an incredibly tricky sequence of shots that you know would still be really hard to do today. Yeah, Ben, like one of the reasons this film is so surprising is because where are the films that rip this film off that came yeah, after? Right. I don't think I'd heard of this movie before I, you know, started noticing it on our list and when it came up, I I didn't think we were in for like one of the great war movies, but I kind of think that this is one. I think it came out in a weird time. It's maybe a little ahead of its time in terms of its production value and and style and a little bit behind the times in terms of the story it sets out to tell. And I imagine that impacted the way it was received by the movie going public in 1969. But I, uh, I think that getting to look back at it from 2019 is a real treat, and uh, I highly recommend the movie. And uh, I think despite the fact that it's not like a polemic that's trying to make a big statement about the nature of war or the nature of Nazis or something like that. Uh, it does sink its teeth into many of those issues and treats them seriously and, uh, and gives them an interesting treatment. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll join you at four and a half cigarette boxes. Have you ever had a really nice cigarette case? I have. <clears throat> I had one for a long time. Uh, it was silver, not gold. And it mattered a lot to me. And it was a little, uh, it was like a comfort thing. And that was, you know, when you're a drug user too, you keep your little packet, your little pouch or your, you know, little system, right? Everybody that uses drugs has their favorite little. I, I call it my rig. <laughs> your rig. Yeah, that's right. And so when I would leave the house and I would have my little, my little drug bag, my little rig, and I'd have my cigarette case. And if it was really a big day, I'd have two Grolsch and an apple in my bag. Basically, I could, you know, I could go, I could, I could march to Remagen on that <laughs> little supply. The name of your production company instead of 40 acres and a mule is two Grolsch and an apple. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. Oh, I, there were so many days when that's all I wanted out of life. There's a lot of refreshment in that package. Two Grolsch and an apple. And that was expensive, right? You, Grolsch was, you know, yeah. you could get, you that's could a get fancy beer two Keystone lights top. and an apple for, for almost nothing. But that was when I was living high. This movie was really a movie. It wasn't not a movie. You know, it was, uh, <laughs> it, you felt like you were watching a movie throughout yeah. the, throughout it. Yeah but a great movie. And when you compare it to the movies that happened right around it, right? MASH and Kelly's Heroes and and uh, that whole time when war movies were, they were trying to uh, make them fresh yeah. by putting by putting Donald Sutherland in there with the, you know, as though he were in Easy Rider or... Experiments in tone. Right, like you were saying, Ben, the split screen cuts. And those don't hold up. When we were when we reviewed the Big Red One, I felt like we got a lot of pushback online from people that believed it was a great movie and rode for it uh, because it was the first war movie they saw with their dad or whatever. I mean, they really 
wanted us to watch the director's cut. God, I I just didn't even take into account that someone would watch it with their dad. Yeah, right. They Fuck watched me, it with right? their dad. And they were like, they were like, this was a great film. But I I challenge you to watch the Big Red One and this movie back to back and tell me which one is the successful war movie and which one is didn't get there. Big Red One is full of the pink explosive. And Big Red One is you you asked like who ripped this movie off? Big Red One took a lot of DNA from this, but didn't succeed. And this movie just succeeded at every level. It's a buddy pick where you really where there's a lot of stakes in that in that uh, fraternal relationship. It criticizes aspects of war and the chain of command, but but you never feel like it's polemical. Um, and it's just a great adventure, and it's beautiful. And I agree with you both. I would give it four and a half gold cigarette cases. Um, the gold cigarette case is a, is a perfect example of what's great about this movie. We know that it matters to Robert Vaughn, but we don't know why. And we know that it, it it's a talisman. It's war booty. We'll never know the full backstory of why Robert Vaughn treasured it. And yet his, the value he put in it somehow, it becomes a part of the case itself, right? It's recognized as a, yeah. as a, as a valuable, it's something more than just the value of it as a gold box. Kruger's last turn in the ball kicking machine is reaching for that thing at the moment of his execution and realizing he doesn't have it. Right. He's having a bad day. The design of that uh, cigarette case really reminded me of this weird gift I got. I, I did a uh, like a two-week homestay in a suburb of Paris when I was in high school. Stayed with a French family, and the you dad really was a insufferable. <laughs> the dad was a uh, an antique dealer. And oh, this story just worse and worse. <laughs> when I when I left, they, they, he like gave me a, a wrapped present and I like put it in my suitcase and when I got home I un It was a note it. that just says lose our address. <laughs> <laughs> I, I unwrapped it and it was a brass like a letter shaped tray and a letter opener. They were both like pretty green with uh with patina. And then I turned it over and there was a like and it was like the the design on that like really looked like that cigarette case, but I turned it over and it was a, there was a swastika on the other side. It was like a Nazi like piece of desk kit. Ben, that wasn't a gift. That was a threat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it means Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. My, wow. my parents and I were like looking at this thing, like, what the fuck? What did he send so, home? Did you put it in a box and immediately send it to me? What did you do with it? Uh, I don't remember. I, I I think my mom probably found a you discreet way bridge, to get rid of it. You threw it off a bridge, did I'm going to write your mom. You know, I like your mom. Yeah. I like your mom a lot. I like your mom more than I like you. <laughs> I'm going to write her a letter right now. Oh, they're living in France, right? Yeah. They are in France. Yeah, they could go visit those people and go oh, ask wow. what gives. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. John, did you have a guy... Oh, so many guys, so many wonderful, wonderful guys in this movie, but I just could not pick a guy other than Ben Gazzara. He's a, he's a main guy. And I know that we try to find, we try to find small guys and not big guys. He's the Brad Wesley of this film. But he is so, he just does every little bit of his character 
is just so welcome. The, the 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 way he's deeply flawed but super capable. I like how he's just fine at the end. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he was like, I'm wounded. Yeah. I'm wounded. <laughs> this movie lets us mourn his death and then he just shows back up at the in the last scene, like, hey, it's a me. <laughs> you know, he was playing the role of Alexander Drobik, who was a real sergeant and the first American across the Rhine. Right. The Carl Timmerman was the first officer across the Rhine, but it was really uh, it was really Alexander Drobik that he basically did that charge that we see in the movie where they just run down the center of the bridge, machine gun fire on all sides and they jump into a bomb crater and then nobody follows them and they just sit overnight in this crater under hostile fire. And meanwhile, like the ninth army is back there trying to fill in the bridge approach and they have no support and they just sat there all night. But anyway, he was, he was a real character, but I don't know. Ben Gazzara, just a great actor and a great, uh, it's nice to have a, a character that's both kind of despicable and also incredibly lovable. It's a hell of a combination. That's my call sign. Great pick. Despicable and lovable in equal measure. Yeah. Uh, my guy could be no one besides Captain Colt. I think we've all been hangry before. Mm-hmm. We've all been tired. You do things that you regret. You get angry at people when you don't mean to. You're maybe a little more aggressive than you intend to be. Captain Colt just cannot deal with how slow Hartman's being in his travels Colt takes lead Colt's really gonna show him he is and in a way that is positively Pranica (laughs) (laughs) just just drives headlong into the mine down the road he sure shows him there's just something familiar about that they have to deal with his body they can't just leave him there so then Captain Colt reappears like Some cool guy scrapes his body off of the road and sticks it in a Jeep. Yeah, he's like under a bloody blanket and then they transfer it over to the other. Hartman's not even trying. Like, Hartman never gets that moment where he like lifts up the sheet and like closes his eyes and puts the sheet back over him. I'm sure there's some future friendly fire tour where we'll have to scrape your body off the side of the road, Adam. (laughs) Yeah. No one's going to avenge me. Yeah, well, no, it won't be tough to reanimate him. I mean, Adam Soul, Adam Soul would fit in a film canister. There's very little animation as it is. <laughs> who's your guy, Ben? Uh, my guy is Bissell, who's uh, one of the one of the enlisted men in the unit. He's the guy where when they're about to move out, when they've been told that they need to go headlong toward Remagen, he's like sorting his belt-fed ammo in the half-track, and Hartman just like jumps up on on the half-track, grabs the swivel gun, and points it at Bissell, and pulls the trigger. And Bissell is like, what the fuck? That was scary. (laughs) And and he gets like, he gets in trouble for something that I could not figure out what. (laughs) Like... His gun, his gun wasn't squared away. Yeah, but he was like in the process of squaring it away. <laughs> yeah, he right. Was work, well. He was work. He was actively working on like packing up ammo and and doing shit. I feel like I would be Bissell. I was sorry to see him go. He kind of he he uh, he was a handsome guy. Yeah, easy on the eyes. <laughs> yeah. Well, is our next film going to be easy on the eyes? Mm, Only the 120-sided die can tell. Here we go. I'm making my die corral. 
you know, it's a 120-sided die. It wants to roll. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't want to stop. It wants to be free. It can't stop, won't stop. It was born to roll. It, uh, it stopped briefly on 74 and then just plopped over to 70. 70 is the number. 70 is the number. Sierra Leone is the location. Kerry Fukunaga is the director. It's a 2015 Ooh. film called Beasts of No Nation. Oh, I've seen this a, movie. Did you see this in theaters? This is a Netflix movie, right? Or did you see this in the theater of Netflix? Did you Netflix and chill to this? Uh, I have not seen this. I saw this when it came out, and you, uh, you added it to the list. So uh, yeah, it's a it's a heck of a film. Oh wow, cool, excited. Well, uh, we will be Netflix and chilling on the next episode of Friendly Fire. Uh, in the meantime, we'll leave it with Rob's. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at JohnRoderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.